Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research at the University of Cambridge. Simon Deakin, we're looking at the impact of a Brexit vote on Labour and migration. You begin your essay by saying there are fears about job insecurity in the Brexit debate. Do you think that's a strong factor in how people will vote? So I think in the last week it's become clear that many traditional Labour voters may be voting to leave and that's because I I think of perceptions not just about the effects of migration and Labour mobility but a more general concern about economic insecurity not being addressed by the UK government or by the EU. So for example there are major concerns about voting to remain from people in areas like South Wales which have seen relatively little inward migration from the EU. And the real issue there, I think, is economic insecurity. It's related to the threat to the steel industry in South Wales, but the history over the past 20 years of the decline of manufacturing in that area and the replacement of stable, regular, well-paid jobs with insecure and casual jobs. Then in areas of the country like East Anglia, there is certainly a connection again between migration and economic insecurity. There the connection is clearer. But in my view, the common denominator is not labour mobility. It is economic insecurity. Some might say, well, Wales has hasn't seen a great deal of immigration. Do you think these fears about economic insecurity and migration are justified? I think the connection is complex and has been exaggerated, but yes, there is definitely a connection between EU migration and falling wages and worsening of terms and conditions of employment in some parts of the country, in particular in the agricultural sector in East Anglia and also in services across the country. And here I'm thinking about areas of the economy, distribution, retail, in which employment has been casualised and where there is also a high level of EU migration. Now, having said that, it's not EU migration on its own that's causing this, and EU migration, free movement of labour on its own, wouldn't have caused it. So is the EU to blame for economic insecurity, or is economic insecurity impacted by UK domestic laws and industrial policy decisions? So if we take, first of all, the issue of industrial policy, for the past 30 years, really, the UK government has rejected the notion of industrial policy. So when an issue comes up like the closure of a plant, like the steel plant in Redcar or the possible loss of employment thanks to Tata's sale of its steel businesses, the normal UK position has been we can't really do anything, we wash our hands of it, we'll allow these companies to go to the wall or we'll sell them to, to the highest bidder, but there will be job losses, okay, basically. It is sometimes said that EU law prevents a more effective integrated state intervention. I don't believe that to be the case. I think EU law is often used as a pretext. Otherwise, it would have been impossible for the UK government to save the banks in 2008 as they did. So it's not EU law on state aids as such, which is preventing governments doing something more systematic to save industrial jobs. It was a deliberate choice of successive UK governments not to have an industrial policy to let the so-called market work. If we're looking at the market and industrialisation, we are in the middle of what some might say is a new industrial revolution led by platforms, technology. Wouldn't this loss of manufacturing within the UK have happened anyway? It's a global trend. No. There are many countries which are affected by the same trend, the same competitive pressures on manufacturing, and also under the same pressures to do something about the need to preserve high-paid, well-paid, regular jobs. Those other countries, one, one thinks in particular, but not only of Germany, but many of the EU countries, the Nordic countries, and to some degree France, Belgium, the Low Countries, the Netherlands, and to some degree parts of Italy, northern Italy, in this, as it were, 
a European core, one can see a very, very different approach to industrial strategy being pursued by governments. And that strategy has essentially been try to maintain stable employment, invest in skills, encourage firms to invest in capital investment for the long term. And actually, those countries have higher productivity than we do and have weathered this competitive storm much more effectively. And yes, it may be true we're moving towards a different industrial era. This is a slow, long-term process. And how we get there, how we make the transition to a platform-based or sharing economy, if that's where we're going, critically matters. Do we do so on the basis of stable employment and social cohesion and solidarity, or do we do so on the basis of a race to the bottom? That's the issue. So has British manufacturing declined faster than other strong European economies like Germany, like France. Absolutely. So we still have a very, very strong manufacturing base, but a very small one. So we have some outstanding, excellent manufacturing companies and some sectors of strength. One thinks, for example, of, of areas of, such as chemicals, which is a traditional industrial area where we're still very strong. We're still strong in pharma. And of course, we are very strong in some newly emerging areas of IT and some parts of pharma, which are relatively new. But we have a very small manufacturing base. It can't support many of the traditional secure jobs which manufacturing was provided. And that's a major problem for or the people who live in this country, because increasingly British people, and not just in industry but in services too, and even in the public sector, can only expect irregular, casual and insecure work, and that's a major problem. So you would argue that the loss of manufacturing within the UK economy is self-inflicted? It's very largely self-inflicted. Now, as, what I say about EU law is it hasn't stopped it, and in many ways has made it worse. And that's because EU law enshrines, above all, the principle of free movement for capital. Now, there's been a huge discussion discussion this week about free movement for labour, but much more important in practice is free movement for capital. The rights of enterprises to move across borders, either to establish themselves in other member states or to trade services across borders, free of regulatory control or very largely free and able to seek out low regulation regimes. And this is a driving factor in the competitive pressures facing all industrialised countries or all the EU countries face this pressure, but some have dealt with it differently from others. In Germany, in the North systems in other parts of Northern Europe, in other parts of the so-called European core, one strategy has been taken, a high road based upon investment in skills and investment in capital goods. We chose the opposite approach. So the EU is a contributing factor to this problem, but it is largely self-inflicted, yes. But if you want to remain within the European Union, you can't have your cake and eat it. Free movement of labour, free movement of capital is part and parcel of being part of the European Union. So let's take, first of all, free movement of capital. So it's always been part of EU law, EEC law, going right back to the Treaty of Rome in the 1950s. But it initially had a different meaning. It meant that companies were free to trade across borders and were free to establish across borders in other member states, but they had to respect the local laws when they did so. So there wasn't a race to the bottom. And the idea was that laws would be harmonised so countries would sign up to a common agreed set of standards governing the establishment of companies, governing services and governing the single market as it later became after the 1980s or so. Now, about 10 years ago, it was a major shift in the approach of the Court of Justice and a shift in the approach of the European Commission and then the idea began to develop that the freedom to move your company, the freedom to trade, also entailed the freedom to choose a lax regulatory regime when you did so. And that began the race to the bottom, which we're now experiencing. To be in favour of free movement for capital and to be in favour of the free market is not to be in favour of a race to the bottom in social and regulatory standards. And this is the problem. So if you wind the clock back 10 years, the EU could have done more 
to protect workers' rights? The, the European Commission under Barroso and later the European Court of Justice from uh, 2007 or so in, in, in two judgments, Viking and Laval, set their face against the idea that there should be a European social safety net or a European floor of rights for workers. Instead, they said, we need low standards of protection and we need a process whereby companies can opt into low-cost regulatory regimes, taking advantage of the so-called freedom to supply services on a cross-border basis. The freedom of establishment effectively meant a freedom to seek out a low-cost regulatory regime. Now, this was very much criticised at the time by many lawyers and policy analysts, but it's important to say it had the support of the Commission and of the UK government. Now, therefore, it's, it's no good the UK government today saying this is all the fault of the EU. It wasn't because successive UK governments supported it, but also the European institutions have a case to answer on this point. Do you agree that migration has depressed wages in many industrial areas of Britain, that it's become the norm to employ workers from other EU states where at home they would get paid less? We see two problems. One is a problem associated with the so-called posting of workers. If a company, for example, based in Latvia, assigns workers employed in Latvia initially or under an employment contract governed by Latvian law, which may not be quite the same, it assigns them to work, for example, on a construction site in the UK, the Latvian company is able to pay Latvian wages, which are much lower than UK wages, and that puts enormous pressure on UK wages. That's one problem. Second problem is, different problem, not posted workers, but migrants who come to work in the UK on a more permanent basis, but in many cases, regrettably, are trafficked in under extremely harsh conditions. So intermediaries in the supply chain linking agencies, intermediaries in other member states to employees in the UK and sometimes end users, even consumers, in a sense, supermarkets are linked to these supply chains. Farmers are, but also retail companies are also part of this chain. And are these chains legal? Yes. So what's happening here is that it's perfectly legal, of course, for a worker from another EU member state to enter the UK and work here. And it's absolutely legal. In fact, we're required to allow the cross-border supply of services by companies who are often labour market intermediaries, agencies and so forth, and working from a base in another EU member state. They have the right to operate in this country. What's, of course, not legal is labour trafficking. And that essentially means subjecting often but not always migrant labour, but often it is migrant labour because often migrant labour is in a weak position, a weak bargaining position. Effectively, it's a kind of forced labour where we see highly degraded terms and conditions of employment, workers not being paid wages, workers being housed, maybe tend to a house uh, under very extreme conditions and threatened, often physically threatened by gang masters and others. Now, this has been the subject of a number of recent high-profile prosecutions in East Anglia and in Lincolnshire of employers and gang masters who were doing this. And we do have laws against this, but they're often not enforced. We don't have enough inspectors, we don't have enough of an enforcement capacity to really crack down on this practice. Now, if you told me 10 years ago, we would see labour trafficking, which many people think is a third world problem emerging in Europe, I, I would have thought that was extremely unlikely, but we do see it now. It's a consequence of a number of things, including the EU's laws on free movement for labour, but also in particular free movement for enterprises. And the EU has turned a blind eye to this labour trafficking problem. So it isn't just, as some might say who want to Brexit, a result of the widening of EU membership that resulted from 2002 onwards, of letting in more low-wage economies and migrants. Well, c clearly much of this would not have happened had there not been enlargement, because enlargement created a much bigger labour supply pool. However, what I'm saying is that enlargement would not on its own have been enough to create this problem. Enlargement is a contributory cause, but it would, this would not have happened had it not been for the direction taken by EU free movement law affecting enterprises 
and the lax regulatory approach taken by the UK in domestic social policy. And just to recap, companies in this country are allowed to, to pay workers at a rate that prevails in their own countries from which they came to the UK, not according to our minimum wages. No, but my argument is that it's clear that some companies, some very large companies in retail and also large farming employers clearly benefit from this process. It is profitable for them to benefit from a relatively low-cost supply of labour and, of course, in a way, consumers also take the benefits in the form of lower prices. Now, that may seem to many people perfectly acceptable, that the shareholders of large multinational retail firms, listed companies, do well out of this process and consumers also do well in terms of low prices. But we mustn't turn away from the fact this is highly adverse for many people, often immediately, of course, for the workers themselves, who may be suffering extremely adverse employment and living conditions when they come to the UK, and that's very bad. But also bad is the effect on local communities affected by this process, in particular in East Anglia and in Lincolnshire. We mustn't turn away from that process and say that is simply a consequence of globalisation or simply a consequence of the internal market. It is not. And it's a very dangerous process because when people see this happen, they understandably become disenchanted with the European Union. Now, of course, it is not, as I've said, simply to do with free movement of labour. And there's, I think, a diversionary tactic going on here. It actually has little to do with EU free movement rules and much more to do with our own government's approach to labour law policy. So could the UK have strengthened workers' rights over the past decade, remaining as a member of the European Union? Of course it could. Most labour law rights under European law are minimum standards and one is permitted to improve on them. And the UK could absolutely have done that. And the UK instead responded in the last few years to the the threat to terms and conditions of employment, which is absolutely crystal clear. It responded not by strengthening the floor of rights, not by strengthening labour inspection, but by abolishing, for example, the Agricultural Wages Board for England and Wales, a move affecting over 150,000 workers who had had access through agricultural wages orders, not just to a living wage, but also to regular terms and conditions of employment. impact of the abolition of the Agricultural Wages Board, together with the growing labour supply from outside the UK, and the way these supply chains were organised, has put huge pressure on terms and conditions throughout the agricultural sector in many parts of the country. Now, you put these things together, it's not surprising that there's a pushback against it. The Remain camp often talk of how the European Union has strengthened social rights within employment, maternity pay, holiday pay, Is that true? Absolutely. So there are many rights in areas of equality law, gender equality, but not not, not just gender equality, equality law more generally, racial equality, religion equality, equality relating to age and disability and to sexual orientation, transgender rights. It's highly unlikely a UK government would have have adopted all of these rights of its own accord. It's most unlikely the UK would have adopted working time legislation or laws for the protection of agency workers. It's very unlikely the UK would have adopted the so-called CHUPI rules that protect workers when there's outsourcing. However, in many of these cases, the UK, first of all, weakened these proposals when they were being debated in Brussels, and then, when they were implemented, took advantage of loopholes or derogations. For example, the derogation which permits an individual worker to agree to work more than 48 hours a week. Okay, so the UK took advantage of a derogation. It, it itself had pressed for. Europe, the European Union, has been a tremendously important supporter of the idea of workers' rights. There's no question about that, and has really changed UK labour law. But again, the EU permitted the UK a number of opt-outs, which have been extremely damaging 
to social cohesion and have created inequality, have contributed to inequality of earnings and working conditions in the UK. So the, the EU is critical, and if there were to be a Brexit, many of those rights, we must imagine, would go. We don't know exactly what would happen after a Brexit, it remains to be seen, but we can say that if we were no longer part of the EU or the single market, those rights would no longer be, be legally protected by virtue of, of our membership of the EU. But is the EU perfect when it comes to social protection? Absolutely not. Out of curiosity, were those opt-outs negotiated by Conservative government, a coalition government with the Lib Dems, or a Labour government? Well, in many cases, Labour governments uh, were just as much involved. Most of these were Conservative or coalition opt-outs, but the Labour government insisted upon retaining the derogation in relation to the Working Time Directive and actively campaigned to make sure that the directive was not amended to remove the derogation. The Labour government... So in that case, workers could work any hours beyond 48 hours. If they individually opted out, that's right. Again, a similar story with the Agency Workers Directive, which was passed under a Labour government. The Coalition government, more recently, has also taken a similar approach to taking advantage of, of opt-outs so and over derogations. The, so over the past 20 years, within the UK, it's domestic governments who've wanted a flexible, cheap labour force. That's right. So we have pursued a policy of so-called labour market flexibility, which is said to employers will cut your costs, will subsidise low pay through the tax credit system. We've encouraged employers to take on workers on that basis. We do have, it is true, low unemployment, lower than it would have been with a more protected labour market. That is possible, although there is underemployment in our system because the unemployment figures and employment figures do not straightforwardly reveal the large number of people employed in casualised forms of work. We do have statistics and data on agency work, on, on self-employment, which is often fake self-employment and is associated with poverty. And also we have data on zero-hours contracts, and they show an increase in all these highly casualised forms of work, in particular since 2008, when the crisis, the recession began. And the cost to the state in terms of corporate welfare? So this is a big issue, but in this particular context, there's a cost to the state because the tax credit system has been used to top up low wages. Now, the current government, I think, has taken a move in the right direction of introducing a higher minimum wage, a so-called national living wage, but it has to be said largely because of the tax burden implied by high levels of tax credits. The current Conservative government, although I think they should be applauded for this measure on the living wage, has not gone further to encourage the reintroduction of collective bargaining, which will be critical to maintaining a wage floor. And in the current trade union bill, trade, now the Trade Union Act, I should say, has passed a measure which is potentially extremely damaging to the capacity of trade unions to protect workers' rights and interests. And so if that went through, even if we opted out of the EU, workers wouldn't have more protection, they would have less. The EU cannot stop the passage of the Trade Union Act, which severely damages trade unions and collective bargaining in the UK. The EU will not act to stop that, that's right. So if we vote to remain, this particular problem can't be addressed merely by virtue of staying inside the EU, regrettably. If we look now, Simon, to European Union legal judgments, what do they tell us about working protections? There's been one about Uber and the EU has ruled that Uber and the way it employs people is fine. Well, what the European Commission, not yet the court, has said is that the very same principles I was talking about before, these are essentially the rights of enterprises, and often it's put in terms of internal market integration. It is being suggested by the Commission that controls over the sharing economy, in other words, imposing minimum standards on Airbnb, for example, to do with accommodation safety, or imposing upon Uber an obligation to re respect the rights of their drivers who may well be workers or possibly employees, 
remains to be seen. The Commission has suggested that rules to protect consumers and workers will fall foul of the principle of market integration. And that's a very dangerous step, because what they're really saying there is local, regional or national governance on the issue of the sharing economy is subject to an overriding principle of protection of the rights of business. And that's a very, very big step. Now, at the moment, that's a document produced by the Commission. It's not legally binding. But that, again, illustrates the way in which this debate is going. If you were asked who was to blame for the casualisation and deregulation of the labour market within the UK, would you say domestic governments or the European Union? Probably 80% UK, 20% EU. So this, this simply won't be addressed by Brexit. On the other hand, simply staying in won't solve the problem either. So my argument is what the Brexit referendum has revealed is a fundamental disenchantment with a part of the working population in the UK. And I think this is probably true of other countries, but because of our referendum, it's had a high political profile that many parts of the population do not feel that the EU is delivering for them. So the promise of the EU was an open economy, but with social protection, and a rising tide would lift all boats. Now, plainly, that isn't happening in Britain. And we have been fortunate this week to have a debate about this, thanks to the referendum. But the solution has to be Europe-wide, because at the end of the day, if we don't find an effective solution to this problem, and in particular, if social democratic or Christian democratic parties can't find a solution, then it is playing to the hands of the authoritarian right, whose interests do not support the maintenance of liberal democracy and do not support at all the principle of an open economy in the form that the founders of the EU envisaged. In your opinion, do we need new rules for the free movement of labour and capital to respond to that vision that the founders of the European Union had? So it's absolutely possible, and I'd, I'd say necessary now, to have a debate about free movement of labour. It's never been unqualified, and in particular in the social security field, it's never been unconditional. It's absolutely possible to have a debate about this in the EU, and yet support the principle of free movement of labour. Similarly, we can support the principle of an open economy without accepting that it leads to a race to the bottom. So we have to have this debate, but I, I want to stress it cannot be a debate for Britain alone. And the only effective solutions in today's integrated globalised world will have to be transnational regional solutions. Transnational at the level of the WTO and International Labour Organisation and other UN agencies, and within our own locality within Europe through the EU. So, of course, in that sense, an actual Brexit would enormously diminish the capacity of our politicians and rulemakers to do anything about this problem. And if we just take, finally, one example of that, if you talk about the migrant chains of workers being supplied legally, cheaply, to UK companies and within the high street, we could plug that loophole. I think that we should be in favour of free movement. We benefit from it. We as British citizens benefit from the right to travel and work abroad. And we also benefit from migration into this country. This assists economic growth, but it cannot be economic growth at all costs. And I do not believe that it is impossible to find a regulatory solution to this problem. The issue of casualisation of work in terms and conditions of employment is a critically 
important issue. And many would say it's a fact of life, we can't do anything about it. I don't think that's the case at all. We have a lot to learn from what other countries have done. But if we don't find a way to curb what we can describe as an antisocial form of capitalism, which has somehow developed over the last 20 years, especially in this country, then unfortunately the political consequences will be severe. And people often say we can't tackle business, we can't regulate business, capital is mobile, and we mustn't fight in the horses, we mustn't fight in business. But now there's an even bigger threat, which is a threat of illiberal, anti-democratic political forces taking hold. And although this is shocking, and it's surprising to have to say this, this is a real threat and has to be dealt with. How will you be voting, Simon, and why? Well, I'll be voting for Remain Bonnie, and I think maybe the reasons for, for that vote must be obvious in light of what I've said. Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today, Food for Thought. Thank you, Bonnie. 